Okay, uh, welcome again to Worship at Seven Mile Road. Let me just give you a, a recap of where we've been and also just a preview of where we're going with our preaching. Um, this will be the end of our series called The Seven Mile Road. Next week we start a new series that we're calling Christ Crucified. As we enter into this Easter season, we're going to consider as a church for a few months um, why Jesus Christ was crucified, uh, what did God accomplish when Christ was crucified, and we're going to look for about 12 weeks or so at what happened at the cross and what God accomplished for us on the cross. If the cross really is this gruesome, horrific event, why is it at the center of our faith? What did God accomplish through Christ crucified? So that's coming next week. Uh, if you'll look through the website or the blog this week, you'll find some more information, an introduction to the series, um, and some more details about what's coming. That'll start next Sunday. Uh, again, as we start a new sermon series, we're also starting a new time at 11 a.m. as well. So what we've been doing over the last few weeks is we've been in a series that we've called The Seven Mile Road. We said that we want to start 2010 by just as a body, as a corporate uh, community, casting a vision for what God is building here and a vision for what kind of church God is planting among us. To do that, we've been for the last six weeks or so in Luke chapter 24 and looking at different details of the Emmaus Road or Seven Mile Road story and beginning to see what it is that God might be doing among us. We started some six weeks ago. We began by saying that everything that happens in this story happens over a road. We talked through the idea of seeing life as a journey and what would it look like if we saw this whole thing as a process. We talked the next week about how the two folks who were on the road came to the road in great need and what it would look like for our community to be a people that recognize we too come to the road in need, broken and, and in need of Jesus and meeting him there. The third week we talked about what would it look like for our community to be centered on Jesus, pointing people to Jesus at all times. We talked about the scriptures and how we long to be a community that loves and believes and reads and submits to and obeys the Bible because in it and through it and by it, we see Jesus and his gospel. We talked one week, even through a snowstorm, about how all of this happens, not just me and Jesus, but us and Jesus in the context of community, that it's two of them who have questions, two of them who wrestle, two of them who walk with Jesus, Two of them who come to see, two of them who run back on mission. All of this happens in the context of community and what it would look like for us to be shaped the same way. Last week we considered mile six along these seven miles and we talked about what it would look like for Jesus to awaken us and open our eyes. That apart from him getting involved, we cannot see, but he gently and graciously does so so that we might come alive and believe and see who Christ is. Today, we're in the last of these mile markers. We're in mile seven, we're walking the last mile, and we're considering together mission. We're talking through the last details of the story, verses 32 and following, and we're looking together at mission and what it would look like if that was another core identity that shaped our community. Now, now, I just want us to acknowledge that this is not the first time we've talked about mission. We sort of talk about mission all the time here. Mission is one of our three big central core identity words. All the time we talk about gospel, community, and mission. 
right? So all the time we're at least in word trying to be a people who are on mission. And, and so what I want to do is I want to just review some of the given, some of the foundational truths for us before we look at Luke 24 specifically and glean some insights about mission. I want us to just consider what are some norms for us, some accepted things. Again, none of this will be new. These are just givens. These are foundational truths for us upon which we're going to build everything else we understand about mission. So here, we've said before and will always say that mission begins with God. That's just one of the convictions we have. That when we're going to start talking about mission, our conversation has to start not with us, but with God. That when we talk about mission, mission is not a project we've created, not an endeavor we're going to try, not something we're going to do because we're going to be a hip or new or cool church or we're going to do it better than others. We want to be on mission because God is on mission. All we're doing when we get swept up into mission is participating in something that God has initiated and God has already been doing. We say missio dei, the Latin phrase, the mission of God. That God is the missionary. Jesus is the missionary. And all of us get swept up into his mission, into what he's doing. That from the beginning, God has been redeeming, reconciling a people to himself. And so anytime we talk about mission, we're remembering this isn't our project. This isn't our endeavor. This isn't something we're going to do. This is something we get to join God in doing because he's been doing it already and will do it even still. Another conviction that sort of flows out of that one is that if God is a missionary, then we are missionaries. One of our convictions at Seven Mile Road is that if you're here and you're a Christian, you are a missionary. If you're here, you're not a Christian, then you're perfectly fine to come and check this place out and belong in community, discover what it is that you believe. But if you're here and you're a Christian, you have to see your life as a missional life, as a missionary. One of the things we make our core group members, the folks who have felt like this is home, sign off on is this statement. I pledge to put the mission of God ahead of my own interests and to view my personal life as a missional expression of God to Philadelphia and the world. So one of the things we sign off on right from the beginning is, I see my life as a missional expression, as a missionary to Philadelphia and to this world. And so one of the questions we're always asking ourselves here is, what does it look like to be on mission to Philadelphia? We say all the time, God didn't drop us in Tanzania. He didn't drop us in Zambia. He didn't drop us in some country in Asia. He dropped us in Philadelphia. And yet, what does it look like to be on mission there? The book of Acts tells us that where you are has been appointed by God. The very time, the very place in which you are has been determined by God for a purpose. And so what God wants to do in Zambia and what he wants to do in North Africa and what he wants to do in Asia, he also wants to do in Northeast Philadelphia and he wants to do it through you. And so all the time, one of the givens, one of the foundational truths for us is, what does it look like for my life to be a missional expression, to be a missionary to these neighborhoods, to these streets, to this city? 
If all of that's true, then we need to remember that missions will never be at Seven Mile Road delegated to a wing of the church, a department of the church. It's not for a select few. It's for all who find a home here as members. So if mission is not done by our members, we have no plan B. If, if our members are not on mission, then Seven Mile Road is not on mission. That's just as simple as it is for us. We have no plan B. We have no backup plan other than you and me seeing our lives as missional expressions in this community. So God is a missionary. We're missionaries. If all of that's true, another conviction for us, again, none of this is new, these are givens, is that missions for us is not a program, but a lifestyle. We are committed at Seven Mile Road never to program out mission. Mission is not an event on the calendar, it's not a date, it's not a thing we attend. Mission will be a lifestyle or it'll be nothing. Sure, there will be certain events, different things that we do as expressions of lives that are already on mission. But if it's not connected to lifestyles that are on mission, they are useless and pointless. It's like a hand or an appendage that's hanging out without the rest of the body. An event by itself not connected to lives that are on mission will be as useful as a hand separated from the body. We want every event that we do, every love park that we try, everything we attempt to be connected to lives that are always on mission. And so one of the questions we're constantly asking ourselves is not just adding things to our calendar, but what would it look like for us to do the things we already do, but do them with gospel intentionality? So simple examples we always give is, you're going to eat this week. You're going to eat several times this week. You may even eat outside your home this week. And the question we want to ask is, what would it look like for me to be intentional about how and where and with whom I eat? So we want to infuse mission into everything we're doing. So that means at some point in the meals that you have, perhaps you invite a coworker or a neighbor or a friend or someone who doesn't know Jesus to do life with you. Maybe you invite someone from Seven Mile Road to that as well, to do community with you. We want gospel, mission, community, infusing everything we do. So you're going to go to the gym this week. You're going to go to the grocery store this week. You might see a movie this week. You're going to watch Lost this week. As you do those things, what would it look like for you to be on mission as you do them? Because mission's not going to be a program. It's going to be a lifestyle for us. If all of those are true, then another conviction for us defines how we even see church. If God is missionary and we are missionaries and missions is not a program but a lifestyle, that will shape the way you see what this thing called church is. Because it will change it for you. It will go from church being a place that you come to get to becoming a people who go to give. I'll say that again. Church will shift from being a place where you come to get to being a people who go to give. Right? If you see this as a place that you come to get, then church will always be sort of seen through these consumeristic lenses. We live in America. We're in the 21st century. It's almost like we can't help but being consumers. And we take that attitude to the mall. 
and to the church. And so this whole place becomes a place where I come to get what I need. And church becomes a vendor of religious goods and services. And soon this whole place and this whole experience will be something that you rate and compare with other places. It's like church is zagat rated for you. And so you're going to pick out and see, does this have the preaching I'm looking for and the music I'm looking for and the small groups I'm looking for and the Bible studies I'm looking for? And if you see it in that consumeristic lens, the second you find a better product somewhere else, you'll bounce. You'll be gone. And frankly, I will thank God, right? Because we're not looking to build a place of consumers. What if the church wasn't just a place you came to get, but you saw this as a place where you are equipped to go and give? Ephesians 4 says that the work of pastors and leaders and apostles and teachers is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That what you're doing when you come here is getting equipped so that you can go and give. So that ministers are not just the few folks that are on our payroll, that all of you who know Jesus are ministers of Seven Mile Road. And, and so that everything about us is so that we could come and get equipped so that we might go and give. You're invited here so that you might go and invite. You're taught here so that you might go and teach. You're loved here so that you might go and love. You're served here so that you might go and serve. You're built up here so that you might build up one another and the world that God loves. We are called to come and get so that we can be a people who go and give. That changes how you see everything about church. Now again, what I want you to hear is none of that is new for us. It may be I've said different ways, but all of those are just givens that we've been talking through for a while. And we're asking by God's grace to make it true of our community. And if we can establish those as givens, as foundational truths, then what I want us to do now is just look at Luke 24 for a few minutes to glean some insights about mission that we're going to build on top of that foundation. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn them to 885. We're going to look at Luke 24. I'm just going to pray and ask the Lord to help us as you turn there, and then we'll walk mile seven together. Father, we ask that you would empower the activity we're doing right now, that your Holy Spirit would come and infuse power to these words so that they might not just fall to the floor or hit the ceiling, but that they might make its way past our ears and to our heart and be planted deep there, Lord. We ask that you would make us a missional people. We drift off mission all the time. We're insular, we're consumeristic, we ask that you would sweep us up into your work, that this church would be an expression of the mission of God, that you would do a redemptive work in Northeast Philadelphia through the men and women that are gathered here. We ask that good seed would fall on good soil, that it wouldn't fall by the wayside, that it wouldn't be swept up by the birds, that it wouldn't spring up shallow and be choked out, but we pray that it would be planted deep in our hearts, that you would break up our hard hearts, and that you would produce good fruit for your glory and ultimately our joy. 
This is our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I imagine that if you've been with us for any of the last seven weeks, you've heard the story already. For those of you that may be new, I'm just going to get you caught up very quickly. When we get to Luke 24, Jesus has died. He's gone into the tomb. And then on the third day, on Sunday morning, he has risen from the dead. And you find the story in Luke 24 of two disciples who have watched his death, his crucifixion, walking from Jerusalem where he was killed to a village named Emmaus. They're walking a seven-mile road. They're talking to one another, completely devastated, destroyed, deflated. Their hopes dashed because they had banked on Jesus being the one who was going to redeem Israel, and he dies instead. And he dies the worst kind of death that would almost signal to them he's cursed by God rather than being used by God. So they're walking the road, they're talking to one another, and all of a sudden a third traveler joins them for the journey, and the reader is let in on the secret that this is Jesus from the dead, risen, alive. And so they walk, and and Jesus is talking with them, and over the course of the road, he opens the scriptures to them, and their hearts start burning with its truth. And then they approach evening, the day, the text says, is now far spent, And so Jesus motions like he's going to keep walking, and they plead with him, they urge him to stay longer. So he comes inside, they break bread and share a meal, and in the midst of all of that, somehow, mysteriously, supernaturally, their eyes are opened, and they see, and they see that this is Jesus. He vanishes from their sight, and we're picking up at verse 32. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us? while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Hear that again. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. The first thing I want you to notice about mission, about evangelism, is that there is an urgency to mission. There is an urgency to evangelism. Right? What happens in the story? Their eyes are open. They had started this journey, this trek, with defeated hearts, devastated, destroyed, discouraged. But their eyes are open to Jesus, and what's their very first impulse? They've got to run seven miles back to tell everyone they can about Jesus. There's an immediacy, there's a promptness, there's a haste, there's a right awayness about what they have to do because the text says, and they rose that same hour. They rose that same hour. That's Luke's language of saying right away with immediacy, with a sense of urgency, they got up and they went back the seven miles to their circles, to their spheres, to their city to tell everyone they could about Jesus. There's a sense in which there's no dilly-dallying. There's no waiting around. There's no, we've got to take care of a few things first. There's a sense in which their eyes are opened and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. There's a sense of haste, of promptness, of immediacy, of urgency in their response. So my question for us is very simply... Does that same urgency mark us in our call to mission, to evangelism? Is there in us a haste, a a promptness, a no-time-to-wasteness about our call, about our response to the gospel? Is there an urgency to us? 
Look, one of the things we say here all the time is that necessarily for us, missions may not look like it has looked in other places. So we've said before that we may not be at street corners with megaphones screaming about Jesus. We may not sort of track bomb this city with a million tracks and hand it to everyone. In the scriptures, we sort of see a different way, and in our culture, our context, our time, maybe we're going to approach it in a different biblical way. But, but here's my fear for me and for us. Is friendship evangelism, the idea that we're going to build friendships and connect with people, and we're going to earn a right to be heard and earn a right to speak into their lives, is all of that for us sort of just code for we're really never going to get around to it. Like, just code for always we're working on friendships. We're just always building friendships. And, and we're going to sort of do that for 12 years and hope someone else finally speaks. Like, is all of that building relationship just code for sort of taking the sting out of evangelism that at some point you're going to have to come out and say, I believe in Jesus, and I really think you need to as well. I want us building relationships with people, but is there in our souls, in our call, any sense of urgency? Like, let this be the day. Let this meal be the time. Let this moment be the hour in which I tell them about Jesus. Is there a prayer sort of hidden in our heart going, God, let this be the moment I get to speak? Is there an urgency, an immediacy about our call? 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says this, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You hear what Paul says? Now is the favorable time. Now, today, is the day of salvation. Paul's saying Jesus Christ has come. He's ushered in this age so that today is the day where you can be saved. Today is the day where sinners can repent and turn back to God and be reconciled to Him. And the implication is, listen, that day is coming to an end. That there is coming a day when there will be no more opportunity or offer. Hebrews says it is appointed for man once to die and then to face judgment. And so today is the day of salvation, but that day will come to an end. And so if that's true, that means that souls are at stake, that people are without hope, without Christ, that people will perish. And so if today is the day and now is the favorable time and that day will one day end, is there a promptness, an urgency, an immediacy, a right nowness about our call? These two respond their eyes are opened and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem right away. But second, I want you to see not only is there an urgency to mission, there's a cost in mission. There's a cost to mission. Hear the words again, 32 and 33. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. We've considered the rose that same hour. Now listen to the end of that verse, that verse or sentence. They returned to Jerusalem. Just consider what's happening here, right? What, what's happened in the story? They have walked seven miles from Jerusalem to 
amazed. And now the text says, and they rose that same hour and they returned to Jerusalem. That means that that same day, that's seven more miles. I'm not a math major. That means in one day they've got to go seven miles. Their eyes are awakened and they've got to now go seven miles back. That's going to be 14 miles by the time this is done. Like two years ago, I ran the Broad Street Run, which is a 10-mile run down Broad Street. 23 months later, I'm still recouping from that run. I have I pledged not to run once in that interim period, right? Because 10 miles is a lot. These guys have just finished walking seven, and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. No, let's sleep the night and wait for morning. No, let's wait till we've regrained our strength. No, let's finish a meal and make sure we have the energy. They rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. But, but not only will this mean for them a 14-mile trek in one day over the course of a few hours, there's another detail in the text. And that is that it's now evening. The day is far spent. Remember verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He, that's Jesus, acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. They said to Jesus, Let's pack it in, because it's evening, it's night, the day's done, we've got to go inside. And commentators have noticed, listen, that, that means that this is not the ideal time to travel. They called it a day because the day was spent and it's now evening. Let's go inside. We know, right, that this story is not 21st century America or Jerusalem. There, there's no street lights along the way. There's no police sort of roaming the streets to keep things safe. This is a terrible time to travel. In fact, a few months ago, we listened to the Good Samaritan story, and Jesus tells the story of a man who is walking down a road, and he is jumped by thieves, and they leave him half dead, steal everything they have. And it's not like the reader said, what is he talking about? No, they, they identified with that kind of danger. They knew that those kinds of turmoil could be around the corner. And so these guys travel at a time with great risk, right? Because... They need to return to Jerusalem 14 miles after the day was already now far spent. So what I want you to see is very simply there's a cost that comes with mission. It cost these guys something. It, it, it assumed risk on their part to be on mission, to go and tell people about Jesus. But that's nothing new, right? Mission has always come with a cost. You open your Bibles and you start reading from the beginning and you'll see that mission has always come with a cost. Always. Like God tells Abraham, listen, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through you. That's mission. God is going to redeem all the families of the earth through Abraham. Oh, by the way, I'm going to need you to leave your country, your family, your kin, your friends, and hit the road. Oh, and where are you going? I'll let you know on the way. There's cost. There always has been. Or Moses, I'm going to use you to deliver Israel. I'm going to redeem my people and set them free from four centuries of slavery. 
Oh, by the way, I'm going to need you to walk into Egypt, the place you ran from because you're a wanted man, and you've got to walk up to the most powerful man in the known world and tell him that the desert god Yahweh, who he's never heard of, said, let my people go. And you're going to have to do that ten times because he's not going to take you seriously. Or Jonah. I'm going to save this city. I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to save that great city. Oh, by the way, it's Nineveh, the most godless people in the earth. And you've got to preach doom and repentance to them. It, mission has always come with a cost. And when you get to the New Testament and to the disciples, it doesn't change. Let me read you the cost of just one disciple, a man named Paul. This is, this is what it cost him, just a brief summary of, of what it cost him to be on mission. In 2 Corinthians 11, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. So that's a whip of 39 lashes. He got that five times. Three times I was beaten with rod. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often wounded, in cold and exposure, and apart from all these other things, there is on me the daily pressure of my anxiety for all the churches. That's one man's resume of what it costs to be on mission. And consider all the disciples. Every last one of them were ridiculed and mocked and slain and speared and beheaded and crucified and boiled in oil and exiled and killed. Every last one. Every one. And all of them take their cue from the missionary. The one who came at cost like no one else who to save us and redeem us would leave the Father and leave His throne on heaven and be cursed and condemned by His own creation and children, who would be strung up on a cross, the wrath of God poured on Him, the condemnation of the people, who would be ridiculed, torn apart on a cross, His blood shed, His body broken for us. Because mission has always come with a cost. And it'll be no different for us. We live in America, and so I don't know that we're risking life and limb, but we're still risking if we're going to be on mission. And we're risking things that for us are precious and near and dear to us. Things that frankly we don't part with for the sake of mission. Because if you're going to go on mission, it'll cost you things like time and discomfort. And that sounds petty, and yet I say it because those are the very things that keep me off mission. Because if I'm going to live with gospel intentionality, that means that at a meal where I'd much rather call two friends who I love hanging out with or, or stay at home where it's comfortable and easy and sit on my couch, I'm going to have to call this person we're trying to build a relationship with and we're going to have to go through the awkward phase of really trying to get to know one another. It's simple things like time, like discomfort, like that extra step that keeps us, that costs us, and prevents us from being on mission. Simple things, like you, you having to hang out with the people that are not easiest to hang out with, or spend time with people when it'd be much easier to hang out with someone else. It, it, it'll cost us time, it'll cost us 
comfort. Comfort is so near and dear our hearts, we hardly part with it. It'll cost us pride or, or reputation or the risk of being ridiculed. Like, have you considered what it is you believe, this gospel? Because if you do, then you'll get the risk of, of saying it out loud. I was driving to Food Basic down Bustleton Avenue, and for some reason I was just thinking through what it is we believe. And as I was rehearsing it in my mind, like I would say it to someone else, I began to see how ridiculous this whole thing sounds. Like how utter foolishness what I believe is. Like if I had to tell someone, I would have to say, listen, there's a God, and He created the world. And, and he started it off with this man and a woman naked in a garden. And then this uh, talking serpent came to them and sort of tempted them to eat a fruit. And because they ate like an apple or something, the whole world is cursed and we're all damned and condemned. And if that's not stupid enough, then i got to continue the story, right? And, and so this God wanted to save this humanity. And so this God became a man. Oh, and by the way, but... God is Trinity, so while he became a man, he's still in heaven, fully God and, and fully God on the earth. And at the same time, he's being born. Oh, and by the way, he's, he's born of a virgin because God impregnates this teenage girl. And, and so she gives birth to a baby and, and God in heaven and God on earth. And this God baby becomes a man and he lives this perfect life and then they kill him. Oh, and, and by the way, it's not just they, it's you who killed him and I who killed him. So 2010, you in Philadelphia, your line to your parents is what killed God and, and strung him up on a cross. And the whole time I'm thinking to myself, God, at some point this has got to become sane or easy. But then what's the next step? Oh, and on the third day he came back from the grave, resurrected, went into heaven, and one day he's going to return. And we're all going to be with him forever. Is that the is that foolishness or what? So so what I got is the gospel will be either life saving, life transforming, life consuming truth, or it'll be folly. But it'll never be cool, or or it'll never be hip. Right? The gospel will be either the most absurd thing a person has heard, or it'll become the sweetest truth to their ears, but it'll never be easy to tell. That, that's what I want you to hear. Right? You're never going to take the sting out of evangelism. You can do it in the context of building a relationship. You can do it at a meal. You can do it at a ball game. You can do it at a movie. You could do it in however you want to. You, you can be as contextual as you want. You're never going to remove the sting that comes from finally saying, yeah, I, I believe all of that, and I think you need to as well. It's always going to come with a cost. Always going to risk being ridiculed and mocked at and thought that that was the most absurd thing in the world. It's either going to be life-consuming, life-altering, life-saving truth, or it's foolishness, and that's what the Bible said that it is. And so missions will always come at a cost. It'll, it'll cause you to risk something like your pride. And, and, and I tell you, for me, 
That gets me all the time. There are certain places where I can talk about Jesus and then there are other times where I'm so fearful of man that I keep my mouth shut when I, keep, when I should be speaking. And it boils down to who do we fear? We either fear man or we fear God. Either it matters to us so deeply what such and such think or it matters to us deeply what God thinks. Whatever the case, mission will always come in your life. Not when you move to somewhere else, though we'll celebrate that when you do, but here it'll come at a cost. So there's an urgency to mission. There's a cost to mission. The last thing I want you to see, what would fuel someone, energize someone, move someone to respond with urgency and to assume these great risks for the sake of mission? I want you to hear the verses again. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures, and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem? Something had happened in their hearts, and they couldn't help but respond this way. You see, though there's an urgency to mission, and though there's a cost to mission, there's also incredible joy in mission. There's incredible joy in mission. And that joy is the fire that fuels and motivates so that you might respond with urgency and you might assume great risk and cost to yourself. Because something had happened in the hearts of these two disciples. They had started this journey devastated, lost, and then their eyes saw Jesus and they can't help but respond with urgency at great cost to tell everyone they can about Jesus. Something had happened, and they could not contain it to themselves. Because that's the way joy works. I have a friend named Joe who lives in Boston. Joe and I went to college together. Some of you know him. Joe came to faith in Christ in college. We went to SUNY Albany. And I love the story of the night Joe came to faith. He was in a library. His would-be wife was talking to him about Jesus. He leaves the library and over the course of a walk through campus, suddenly God opens his heart and becomes a Christian. He, he comes alive to faith. This is late at night. You stay up forever at college. So at 2 a.m., after he's become a Christian over the course of that walk, he goes back to his dorm and he gets on the phone and he calls every single person he knows. Every friend, every acquaintance, everybody he's ever met. And he says, you've got to meet me at the bottom of our quad right away. And so at 2 a.m., this crowd of kids come in, in pajamas, sort of wiping the eye crust away from their eyes, and Joe begins to tell them about Jesus. Never been to a real church, never been to a Bible study, never a Sunday school class, never church, none of it, and yet something had happened in his heart, and he could not contain it. When the joy of the gospel of Jesus floods our heart, it responds with urgency, assuming whatever the cost may be. Because that's how joy works. That's how joy works. Joy will always only be completed when it's shared by someone else. Okay? That's the way joy works. Joy that's tucked away in your heart will always remain half-baked, partial, and incomplete. I dare you to have something good happen in your life and keep it to yourself. 
It's, we can't. It's the reason even if we get a good sale or watch a good movie or read a good book, we've got to call somebody. Because that's the way joy is completed. Joy never is fulfilled if it's tucked away in your heart. Joy always finds its maximization, its completion, when it overflows the banks of your heart and floods and fills the hearts of another. I'm on mission. You have to be on mission for your joy. Because your joy will never be maximally complete until it is shared by others. Which author writes a book and never lets anyone read it? Or directs a movie and never shows it to anyone? Which artist paints on a campus canvas and, and, and doesn't display it? No. Our joy is complete when it fills and floods the heart of another. This is why the Apostle John throughout the New Testament will always say, I'm writing these things to you so that my joy may be complete. He says, what, I, I have to write the gospel to you because I've seen and touched and experienced the word and I'm writing to you so that you might have joy and my joy might finally be complete. I want joy, so I want to be on mission. And so if you find that you're not on mission, the place to start is not with mission. The place to start is where is your heart and where is your joy in the gospel? If you're not on mission, if you're not practicing evangelism, the place to start is not with mission or evangelism, it's with your heart. And to ask God, is my joy still bubbling and overflowing and complete in you? Is the news that I am a sinner who would never see Christ, is the news that I should be condemned apart from His grace, is the news that the wrath that was deserved by me placed on Christ? Is the news that I should be eternally separated from God but have been adopted into the family of God? Is the news that I was his enemy and now I am his son? Is the news of the gospel joyful in my soul and in my heart? And if it is, then I will respond with urgency, whatever the cost, for maximal joy to the glory of God and to my great joy. And so if you're not on mission, if you're not in evangelism, you know what you need to pray? You need to pray what David prayed in Psalm 51. Create in me, O God, a new heart and sustain in me a right spirit. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. To God's great glory and our joy. So Seven Mile Road, this is our vision. If you'll let me, let me just remind you one more time. Pardon me to let me say to you one more time what it is we believe God is building here, calling us to here. What if this was a people in a community that saw life as a journey? So whether it's the salvation of sinners or the sanctification of saints, coming to faith in Christ or maturing in Christ, we're going to be real patient because it happens over the course of time. We're going to be real patient with one another because Jesus walks seven miles with these men and over the course of the journey begins to show them truth. What if this was a place and a people where people could come with great need? We didn't play religion with each other. We didn't put on pious pretenses. We didn't pretend that 
families and life and work and ministry was all perfect. We acknowledged that we're broken and in need. And we came together and met Christ along the road. What if this was a people and a place that was committed radically to being about Jesus? That everything we do here is so that he might gain great glory and his name might be in lights and we're constantly pointing people to Jesus. What if this was a place and a people that loved this book and read the scriptures and believed it and obeyed it and preached it and taught it and prayed and sang it and sat under it because through it and by it and in it, we saw Jesus and his gospel. What if this was a place where it wasn't just me and God on my couch or at church, but that together we would wrestle with our doubts, together we would come to faith, together we would break bread, I would let you into my life, and you would take the risk of letting me into yours, and we became a community, and, and we fought off gossip, and we fought away malice and division and pride where we celebrated one another, edified one another, built up one another. We were a community. What if we were desperate for God to open our eyes to see Him and desperate for God to awaken the men and women in our city and we prayed in such ways? And what if all of that led us on mission? So that as we get on the road and as we begin to see, our first impulse is to run seven miles back to our cities and our streets and our neighbors and our co-workers, our family and our friends with urgency, whatever the cost, for our joy and God's glory. God, bring this to pass here. Amen. Let's pray.